uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can roll the image, make it flutter. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your television set. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side, as always, in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, it's been the kind of year where you think to yourself... What the heck is going on? So what we've done is we've taken a look at an anthology series, a classic anthology series that deals with what could be called 2020, but we call it the <laughs> Outer Limits. So straight away, we're going to kick it up to the satellite. And uh, Karen, what do you know about the Outer Limits? Well, Larry... I know a lot about The Outer Limits because I really <laughs> I really love this show. Um, yeah, I'm really pleased we're taking some time to talk about The Outer Limits. Like you said, uh, an anthology series. You know, these were really popular on TV in the uh, 50s and early 60s. They all sort of started to go the way of the dinosaur by the mid-60s. So I was kind of um, looking back and uh, Outer Limits had a very short run, um, came on in September of 63 and was off by January of 65. Mm -hmm. So had about a season and a half. Uh, if you look back at some of its uh, contemporaries or peers, however you want to look at it, you know, Twilight Zone had a, a nice run from 59 to 64. Um, Alfred Hitchcock Presents was, was on from 55 to 65. So sort of similar shows in some ways um, had longer runs. So Outer Limits really uh, just had a, a brief moment in the sun, so to speak. Um, there were 49 episodes, 32 in the first season, 17 in the, the abbreviated second season. The show was originally going to be called Please Stand By, but ABC, the network that ran it, kind of nixed that. So they went with Outer Limits, which I think was a, a snazzier title anyway. 
Um, it was the creation of Leslie Stevens. So he was a kind of interesting guy. Um, reading about him reminded me a little bit of Gene Roddenberry, but not quite so much. <laughs> um, not as eccentric as Gene Roddenberry. But Stevens uh, as was born, uh, I think, in the 20s and... and um, when he was a young man of like 15, he traveled with Orson Welles' Mercury Players as sort of a gopher for a while. He actually kind of disappeared and his parents were like, where the heck is he? And then they found out he was traveling with Orson Welles. <laughs> so a little bit of a, a colorful character. Uh, in uh, 43, he uh, entered World War II as an intelligence officer. So uh, got involved with that and was a pretty smart guy. Um, and then started entering into, uh, after the war, entering into show business, um, did some work writing songs and tunes uh, for different things, and then got his big break in TV as a writer for um, Four Star Playhouse, and then and kind of moved around and started doing a variety of things and became sort of this triple threat as a producer, writer, director. Um he founded his own uh, company, Daystar Productions, and that's what you see when you watch Outer Limits. It says it's uh, produced by Daystar Productions. And so he came up with this concept for, for Outer Limits, and he wanted to do sort of a really literate kind of science fiction show um, on TV. He, and he really wanted to um, kind of push the concepts. Uh, he wanted to make people... Um, really see themselves in in these characters that he was putting out there. Uh, he wanted to stress concepts of humanity um, and have a strong theme. He was really interested in doing um, uh, a show with impressive cinematography. So he's, he's, he was trying to put this all together, but the problem was when he took it to the network, they were a little leery of... Uh, putting this show on because they felt like he was maybe going to be um, overworked, that he wouldn't be able to do it all. So he brought in an old friend of his, Joe Stefano, who uh, also had been involved in songwriting and then got into TV and film. And he was at that time best known for being the screenwriter for Psycho. Ah. So they said, oh, okay, you're going to bring this guy in to be one of your, to be a producer, writer, director on the show as well. And so when Stefano was brought in, they gave the go ahead for the show. And you can kind of see the two men had um, stylistic differences in that the shows that Stevens was the uh, writer on are much more science fiction-y, you know, a lot of times they're in labs and things like that. And the ones Stefano was the writer on have more of a, like a gothic haunted house kind of feel. Mm. Um, so with with that in mind, they, they you know, they started the show up. Um, Stevens was around for most of the first season. Um, and then uh, Stefano kind of came in and took over uh mid-season or so um the second season really uh most most of that was the work of ben brady who came in later on um so you don't see as much influence from either of those guys stevens or stefano later on uh they also had a really uh, amazing crew on the show some of whom would later go on to be involved in star trek 
including Robert Justman, who was like a first assistant director. Um, also, uh, Fred Phillips, who was a makeup man on the show. And uh, the Project's Unlimited team, who did some of the special effects, included Jim Danforth and Wah Chang. And Wah Chang created a number of things for Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, one of the things, the main concepts that they had for the show was the idea of what they called the bear, which is like the alien or monster that usually appeared. This is one of the things that really set it apart from Twilight Zone because they almost always had a monster yeah. uh, in the show. And they said that they wanted to have this to kind of pull in the audience um, in the writer's Bible for the show. The bear was described as one splendid, staggering Uh, shuddering effect that induces awe or wonder or terror. So people always (laughs) (laughs) people always say, why are they always had these crazy monsters? But, you know, it makes the show memorable. Uh, And they definitely had them in almost all of the first season, but uh, not so much the second season. Karen, do you think that they did that to kind of differentiate themselves from Twilight Zone in that respect? I think that was part of it and i think it was again to catch the the viewer you know mm-hmm. to to really uh you know get their attention um and yeah i think setting setting it apart you know it, it certainly pulled in the kids and you know if you look at most of the episodes they had a lot of kind of adult content mm-hmm. um that i think pulled in the older viewers yeah. um and then lastly, I'll just mention the music. I think we, we probably would want to talk about that. But that was by a composer named Dominic Frontier. He was sort of, um, as a young man, he was a, a virtuoso. He grew up in Connecticut. He was able to play multiple instruments as a young man and then um, wound up getting the attention of a music director at 20th Century Fox who sort of sponsored him and brought him into the uh, studio system. And, uh, of course, the music on Outer Limits is quite memorable. So with that, I will uh, let us go into our usual freewheeling discussion, but I just wanted to provide a little background for uh, how Outer Limits came to be. Why, thank you. Uh, that's some good recon we have from our reconnaissance officer on the Outer Limits. Yeah, I think uh, as far as the Outer Limits goes, I pretty much grew up on it. I think growing up, I was more into Outer Limits than I was Twilight Zone. Mm. It was like later in my life that I got into Twilight Zone. Uh, I think, And I think it's because of the bear. It's because of the, the alien or the monster or the creature mm. or whatever that would appear each week. Now, again, Mm -hmm. you know, that's something they strayed away from in the second season. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that was the reason for it to get canceled halfway through, but um, the first season uh, has some great, great monsters and creatures. Like you mentioned, Watchang and Jim Danforth and people like that, putting those things together. In fact, it was the first episode was Galaxy Being, right? Right. That one... The the galaxy being was this like glowing white creature, alien. And I was like looking through one of the books and they had pictures. It was just a guy in like a black wetsuit. And they were like <laughs> highlights, you know, as the light hit it, there'd be little highlights. And they just took that and reversed it into a negative. 
So suddenly mm-hmm. the black suit with the highlights is now a white glowing figure with these black spots. Very simple effect. And of course, you know, this is all pre-CG and pre, right. you know, face it was cheap TV effects, but they use them to, to great effect, basically. Oh, yeah. They, they had some really clever clever effects and, and clever designs, really out there kind of designs. Um, and, and Janos Prohaska was part of that group, too, who um, created and portrayed a, a number of aliens, including the, the Thetan from Architects of Fear. And uh, he also... Uh, you know, would later go on to do the Horda for Star Trek and, and other characters. So it was a, a very, um, very creative group. Well, before we go down the rabbit hole of episodes, <laughs> what were a couple of your guys' like favorite alien creature monsters bear? Ooh. Larry, you have any thoughts? Well, I, you know, I, I'm a Twilight Zone guy, just like, you know, uh, you, Adam, but you just Adam, watched all these Outer Limits episodes. Larry, Larry's <laughs> more of an intellectual. Uh, well, <clears throat> that being said, one of the things that I enjoyed, uh, I, you know, I remember the Xanti misfits and, and, uh, you know, the glass hand, demon with a glass hand, but I went deep into this. Um, doing research, watching episodes, and you know it was it, it was great um, to to pick a favorite. Um, gosh, well, not uh, so much episodes. Right? We'll talk about those, but I mean, just a couple bear, favorite. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm a fan creatures. of the Xanti. I mean, they're they're creepy and they, you know, they're buggy and these weird faces on them. I can't. I can't even still look at that. I watched it the other night, and uh, every time they would, when they showed them all starting to do the jailbreak out of the ship, and mm-hmm. and you know they they sh- not the still ones, but the animated ones, and they're popping out and turning their heads and looking, and you know they got the the one that looks sort of like a beatnik, and then the one with the gray hair. It's, I was just like, oh god, I can't look at this. I can't look well, at. It. I gotta say, even though the effects are are dated, they, they still stand up, in my opinion, today. I mean, the stories really carried these these episodes, and and I enjoy the. And granted, I have a bias. You know, I am into this genre, but they still work today. Whether it's a cautionary tale or, you know, uh, you have the bear, but sometimes it was humanity that was the bear. You know, those stories still have resonance today, which which was impressive to me. Well, like I say, they were, they were simple effects, but a lot of them were, you know, I mean, look at like, you know, the sixth finger, the, the makeup right. they had on David McCollum, you know, in his final mm-hmm. form. That's, cla- that's like classic Outer Limits. Um, even the coelacanth frog creature <laughs> things that are in uh, tourist trap and they, the you know, they come crawling out of the uh, the basically was the MGM pool but <laughs> come crawling out of the lake there and stuff I mean that's just amazing stuff yeah I was reading a little bit about how they had to make those the, the suits and the guys inside and they had to put like some ballast and then 
one of the guys was like basically drowning inside of the thing. And it was just like, that was a lot of work for one episode. And they had to crank those things out in a week. And, you know, you've got these big heavy suits these guys are trying to wear. And they had to make multiple for the scenes where, you know, there were several of them running out of the the lake. Um, That's an impressive amount of work for a TV episode. Yeah, I mean, that really amazed me because it's like you have all these creatures coming out of the lake and it's like, well, that's not, I mean, nowadays CG, you can like shoot one and then just multiply it and stick them in the frame. But yeah, yeah. Back then, if you wanted five or six creatures coming out of a lake, you had to make five or six creatures to come out of the lake. Right. I'll tell you one of my favorite bears is the, uh, the Ebonites from Nightmare. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was going to mention that. It's just, it's just creepy enough um, and it's, and again, like to Larry's point, you know, there is a certain cheapness. If you look, if you closely examine the episodes and the, the creatures, there's a cheapness. It's like, okay, so it's a skinny guy in a leotard, you know, but the makeup itself, there's, um, it's both creepy and beautiful and graceful in a way. Yeah. yeah I love the makeup and even like the bat wings on the suit. Mm-hmm. They basically go from the, the feet to the hands carry. as they lift them up. Yeah. yeah. The way that the actors carried the role. I mean, it really... Oh, God. What episode was I watching? Um, Keeper of the Purple, Purple Twilight. Twilight. And it was like a, a chicken head, but like a gorilla body. Is, is oh. that the right... Do I have a different... No, that's... that's um, I know which one you're talking about. It's where the guy is... Uh, duplicate Man, that's The Duplicate Man, yeah, yeah. Yes. And, and, you know, when you first see the creature, it's kind of like, oh, what is this? Like, a, you know, a college uh, mascot, uh, you know? But the way that the guy goes in and then the dialogue and everything, it really draws you into the story. And, and I had to think back. We had a conversation a couple of episodes ago with Bob where he's like, oh, yeah, you know... Uh, Voyage to the bottom of the sea, just like some of the Batman episodes. When the budgets went down, you just had a black room with like set pieces. Um, a lot of these monsters started off with like a flashlight on a black wall, and then evolved into whatever the bear was going to be for that episode. Well, that's the other amazing thing about the Outer Limits, and uh, you know, Karen touched on it a little bit. Is just the fact that it's almost like science fiction noir in a lot of these episodes and great care was taken, you know, to basically put shadows on the wall. Right. I mean, you look at somebody's in a lab and suddenly in the back on the wall, there's like shadows of different shapes and different patterns. And, um, you know, they're, they're not like lit perfectly studio bright. Maybe half their face is dark or they have a, you know, shadow on them. Um, uh-huh. Very, very stylized. Very cool. Right. Stevens and, and Stefano were very aware of European and Japanese filmmaking styles. And they worked with the cinematographers to emulate that. Like you're saying, Bob, they 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 wanted it to be stylistic. They wanted it to evoke mood. And I, that's something that's you know, you don't see so much anymore. And, and again, I hate to like always go back to Star Trek, but you know, you look at the lighting in Star Trek, it was very stylized as well. And you, you, yeah, it's something you don't see so much. And I think a lot of times when 
you know, younger people look at something like a Star Trek or a Twilight Zone, not a Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, and they're like, well, why is it, you know, why is these shadows and why is this filmed this way? Why? What's the angle? Because they, they would also, you know, use unusual angles in, in Outer Limits. And it's, it's like it's to evoke mood and emotion, you know. It's something people aren't used to necessarily anymore. I'm saying it still works today, you know, when you watch it. Yeah, well, I mean, Larry mentioned the, the black infinite backgrounds of the set pieces, but, you know, why not take it a step further and instead of having a black background, have a, a lighter color background and, you know, put the shadows on it. Mm. It, looks, it makes it look like a fuller set. Mm-hmm. Very true. Well, let, let's ask Bob, what was your bear, your favorite bear? Oh, man, well, you know, definitely, I was going to say the Ebonites. Definitely the Xantes. Mm. Yeah. I mentioned the uh, the coelacanth frog creature things, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of, like, just simple things, too. Right. You know, like, I was, was it Wolf 359? I was going to say the same it's thing, It's like, you've got, you've got, I don't know, what, do you, what, what would you call it? It's not really an alien. It doesn't come from space, but interdimensional creature or something but yeah it's just like you can kind of see it's like like a a material stretched over two hands with a face in the middle yeah. but the way it moves and the, you know the the actor obviously he was probably a puppeteer or whatever but this the way it moves and the way it is lit and acts it's very it's an amazing creature it's it's very creepy and I had a strange reaction watching it because I was like, I was getting creeped out, but I was like, well, this is silly. It's just like vinyl or a balloon or something when the guy's hands behind it. So I can rationalize it. But at the same time, I was like, wow, that is super creepy. Uh, well, Karen, or is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, is it you is. Know, it's one of the. Yeah, right. One of the first episodes I wanted to dive into was Wolf 359, for obvious reasons, if you're a Trekkie. Um, <laughs> and it, it was, you know, if you have never seen the original Outer Limits series and you want to you want to take a deep dive, Wolf 359 is a good way to start. Now, you can go in with the uh, the Architects of Fear or the Sixth Finger, the Xanti Misfits. Those are all up there but i i really enjoyed wolf 359 that yeah that was one that wasn't like at the top of my list to watch but mm-hmm. i did go in and watch it and uh it was it was a very interesting episode because of one that creature um but then that whole concept of like we're going to recreate a a planet here on earth and right just the the idea behind that was kind of interesting and then um yeah this idea that somehow they've created some sort of consciousness or some sort of entity that's been compelled to preside over this planet i i don't know that was yeah it was very creepy though that the the, the whole mood that was evoked was what struck me part of the fun in watching these to me was you know you think it's going in in a certain direction and and it it doesn't it it gets into a different story um not all the episodes i mean some of them 
you can kind of see, you know, how it's going to end. But this was one that really surprised me and, and I enjoyed. You know, at first I was kind of like, hmm, um, what was it? The, the Brain of Colonel Barham. Um, good acting, but that that's kind of like Spock's brain to me as far as the <laughs> limits go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a guy's brain one. in a... It was a guy's brain in a in a container, and and they were doing, uh, you know, he was terminal, but they were able to preserve his brain and enhance it, and he could, um, I don't know, through telekinesis or whatever, control people. So, you know, he was able to use one of the soldiers to beat down this other guy and and get some information or whatnot. And his his I think it was his girlfriend, not his wife. You know, he wanted her brought to him, but his his evil part of himself was you know the brain had good and bad it almost reminded me of like star wars the concept of the sith and the jedi and and that's another thing too that kind of struck me with this there's a lot of stories uh, and karen you mentioned this with you know star trek and even going to star wars where it, it all goes back to like this like a central concept of good and bad or rational or irrational um. It, it, yeah. Anyway, it, it, as far as the brain of Colonel Barham, it was an okay episode. But um, if if you're watching them, it might be one you can skip. <laughs> well, I mean, like for me, you know, I'm all about the bear. Yeah. You know? I always love to see the monster of the week. But there was one that I I really got into, and maybe it was the time I watched it. But it was 100 Years of the Dragon. Oh. Yeah, um, I watched And that. I that just happened to watch that one on election day. <laughs> <laughs> as a as I was kind of like looking on my phone to see election results and then watching 100 day, 100 years of the dragon <laughs> which uh, was basically an Asian country. It didn't really I don't think they ever really said what country it was. It's yeah. just an Asian country. And uh, they developed this serum that when they inject you with it I think it's for 30 minutes, your face and your body and your skin is like completely pliable like clay. And they can sit there and mold you however they want. And they basically have someone that they mold into the image of one of the presidential candidates for the United States. And he ends up winning the White House. And basically he's there to be able to do whatever functions makes it easier for this Asian country to advance their troops, basically in this region where they're they're in in a war. I thought you know I thought it was great, and it was more like because it was the vice president that first kind of figures out that there's something wrong, there's something going on with this guy. He's not quite right, and so he's the one that goes out and solves the mystery, and then. It's almost like a whodunit, you know, they're at a party mm-hmm. and he's like, you know, he comes in with a suitcase and the serum and everything else to to demonstrate what had happened. But I thought it was a, and again, it was a very shadowy noir type episode, but right. I thought it was a, one of the better ones, even though it didn't have a monster. Yeah, I uh, I was surprised. I. I, at first, I was like, uh, should I skip this one? And then I thought, well, you know what? I'll, I'll watch it. And I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, and I think it's part of just the overall quality of the show. It was so high. We had s- such good actors, not only in that episode, but in most of the episodes. They had really good actors. And uh, 
and I think he had had something to do with the times as well. Just the yeah. idea that this compromised, in well, not even compromised individual, this fake uh, individual had been put in a position of power. Uh, there was something really um, obviously very alarming about that. So, yeah, that was a very good episode. It was. Without... You know, without naming communism, I think the bear was communism. I mean, it was a Asian country, but there was a lot, you know, in that era, what we have like McCarthyism, communism, you know, the world was changing from the world prior to that. And um, I think it's one of those episodes that stands up today. I, I can understand Bob getting a little anxious watching that while he's watching the election. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I always enjoy anything that Robert Culp is in for mm. some reason. I, Robert Culp tends to eat up the scenery in every scene he's in. And, of course, he was in Demon with a Glass Hand, which I'm sure we'll get to. But uh, he was also in Architects of Fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where they're actually, you know, they're trying to avert a world war by creating an alien Turning basically turning Robert Culp into an alien who would appear mm-hmm. during a United Nations briefing and basically, oh, it's almost like what government does these days. It's like, hey, look over there. You know, <laughs> here's a distraction for you to take you away from this other stuff that's going on. I think the thing about that one, and I, that is one of my favorite episodes. Um, obviously, it has one of the best bears ever, the, the Thetan. And I remember years ago, somebody was going to produce a really high-quality figure from that, and they never did. But um, uh, it's a, there's a really good personal story there. They take the time to make you care about the characters. You know, um, Robert Culp and his wife and that uh, you know, they're they're a very sweet couple. And the fact that he's basically sacrificing himself and then as the, the end kind of points out, you know, like for what? For, for, you know, what good does it do for him to do this thing when, you know, the idea of like they're going to do this thing, generate hate and fear where maybe love is a, a better way to go. So... Yeah, it's a it's a real striking episode. It's it's not just for the bear, although the bear is fantastic. And you know they cut the bear out um, when it was originally shown in some places. When the Thetan shows up and starts stomping around, they they actually kind of cut that out in some places because they thought it was too horrifying to, really? <laughs> to show. Yeah, 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 I heard they put like a black screen over it or something and yeah. And some some areas didn't even show the episode. They just skipped it. It was uh. it was too much. Too much. Yeah. Well I, I agree with Bob uh, on uh, Robert Culp uh, a very, very strong episode. Um, and, and let's get into the the Demon with the glass hand. That was uh, Harlan Ellison. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, Mister Harlan Ellison, and a great story. And you know the the hand. I mean, it's just kind of eerie, you know, to think about it. Well, when it when it when they first reveal the hand, it's basically doing the hang loose thing because it's missing the three <laughs> missing the three <laughs> fingers in the middle. <laughs> 
it's all a glow like That's a right. Christmas tree. But yeah, no, it was, it was an inter- very interesting concept. I mean, it was very well thought through, obviously by Harlan Ellison. But Robert Culp plays Trent, who came back from the future. He was sent back because when the aliens destroy the human race, he's like the only survivor. So he holds the key. So he's sent back, but missing three of the fingers on his computer hand. And the, the aliens can come back from the future through this mirror, but they, they can only come back two at a time. Mm-hmm. And basically he'll kill one and then it's instantly replaced by another. So I was kind of thinking, well, why don't you just grab the two of them and tie them up in a chair and be done with it? <laughs> but Do you uh, guys know, was Harlan happy with that episode? I know. He was he happy was with the episode, but I read that he brought a lawsuit against James Cameron years later mm-hmm. because he felt that there was more than just a little influence that Cameron stole from Demon with a Glass Hand and, and put into the Terminator. Mm. Yeah, he thought both Demon with a Glass Hand and another Outer Limits episode, Soldier, right. had influenced Terminator. And especially, we can talk about Soldier soon, yeah. but uh, <laughs> watching the opening of Soldier made me think of Terminator, for sure. Oh, yeah. But yeah. And supposedly, yeah. I guess Cameron agreed. He didn't, you know, Harlan didn't win the lawsuit, but... Cameron did admit that it was an influence and I think put Harlan Ellison in the credits at the end of the movie, but that was, I think that's about as far as it went. I think he gave him a fat stack too, because I think there was, like there was a settlement. Um, well, like I said, there's a lot of things that influence, you know, different stories, different yeah. movies, different books. Well, I mean, we're all influenced by everything we've seen and heard and experienced. Right. But just try to change it enough so that it's not a ripoff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think Demon with a Glass Hand, it's one of the most stylistic episodes, too, because they're using that Bradbury building in L.A. Mm. with the, the, those elevators on the inside with the rot, looks like wrought iron cages and stuff. It's just, you know, again, that noir feeling. Um yeah, it's visually. I mean, I can just like I can see it in my head so easily. It's it makes such an impression, and uh, it's funny because again, it's a case where like the aliens are really unimpressive <laughs> in the episode. They basically guys running around in leotards with you know dark eyes or with looks like pantyhose over their faces. <laughs> um, turban, you know, but turbans. It, it, One guy had a turban, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. Um, so, but you know, they sell it because the the actors are so serious about everything. You know, they they make you buy into it all, um, and the the whole story with uh, Trent and and the girl, and you know, then his discovery at the end about who he really is. It's it's just all put together really well. It's a really tight little hour of drama. So now that, that's a Star Trek tie-in too, because the actress who plays the girl. Is Arlene Martell, right? Who played Pring oh. in Star Trek? For some reason, that didn't occur to me. And we oh. also dis- we also discussed her in the Twilight Zone too, because she was the nurse okay. in that one episode. But um, what I enjoyed was he would like retrieve these fingers, like one at a time, and he'd 
stick it on the hand and you'd be like, all right, can you tell me what's going on now? Yeah. Well, no, I don't have enough information. You know, I'm not complete. <laughs> I don't have enough information. Get another finger, stick it out. Okay, now can you tell me, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was a sort of a running thing through the episode. But boss, where are we going to find that finger? Kid, you don't want to look. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I had to go there. It was definitely a cool episode. You know, yeah, if we go back to the other Harlan Ellison episode, The Soldier, with another Star Trek actor, Michael Ansara, who played Kang mm-hmm. in uh, Day of the Dove, uh, yep. Klingon. It's an excellent episode. I just, I still kind of question when the linguist is like, well, I'm going to take him home to my family now. Yes. You know, it's like, that makes no sense. <laughs> here's this, here's this soldier who's bred to be nothing but a soldier. He doesn't understand anything other than being a soldier. And you're going to bring him in your living room and have him live in your house with your family and your wife and your two kids. Yeah, that that makes no sense to me. That That's the part of the, the whole thing where it kind of, it's like, okay, you have to buy into the thought that the therapist is kind of a little bit nuts because this, this guy is a killer. Why are you doing this? Um, yeah, makes no sense at all. I mean, the only explanation is the military wants to keep bringing in all these people to interrogate him. And maybe the therapist thought, well, the only way I can do this is to get him out of here. And uh, Maybe. <laughs> where else can I take him other than home? I'll just endanger my entire family. <laughs> For the sure, greater he could, good. Yeah, he might go crazy and kill my my children and wife right in front of me. But you know, it's a risk I'm willing to take. Well, the other well, thing, the other thing too, is like he brings him in, and you see that he's in the home, and he's really skittish, and he's ready to just you know kill anyone at a second notice. He tells his son, oh, take him and show him his room. Like like the son is the sacrifice. Let's see what happens here. Harry wasn't a soldier, but it was kind of the same concept in Harry and the Hendersons. (laughs) Bringing it back to Bigfoot. (laughs) But yeah, that's that's another, you know, it's a Harlan Ellison episode. Um with a really intriguing concept somehow you know there's a lightning strike and the the soldier is fighting his enemy in the future somehow they get transported the the second soldier the other soldier gets sort of stuck in between time zones for most of the episode he's kind of in a limbo and uh but soldier uh quad what's his name uh Oh, now I forgot. It's like Quarlo Quadrini. He gets uh, zapped to our time and doesn't have a clue what's going on. And he speaks sort of this gibberish English. Um, Still smokes, though. Apparently smoking is still a big thing. Smoking was universal back then. (laughs) Everything from the Flintstones to the Outer Limits. Yeah. But... uh, yeah, Michael Ansara does a really nice job. You know, he brings an intensity to it, uh, obviously, that's needed. Oh, yeah, because yeah. you, th- you you can just feel that he's going to snap at any second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's why, yeah, you can't take your eyes off him because you do have this feeling like he, he can break somebody's neck any second here. Right. Um, and, and there's never a moment where 
at least when I was watching, I never felt like, oh, he's he's he now trusts this guy. I never felt like he fully trusted him. You know, I still felt like he could turn on him at any at any point. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was an interesting one. I don't know that it had the greatest resolution at the end, but uh, still an entertaining episode. Well, you know, I will say, obviously, you know, the, the music is is great. Um, before I get into the music, um, the other thing I liked, and, and these are two episodes that I did not get a chance to watch, but the title of the episode is so intriguing. I'm going to watch these um, in the coming week. The Man Who Was Never Born. Oh, that's a good one. That was definitely Just, good. Martin Landau. Martin mm-hmm. Landau, and I, I didn't have time to watch that. The other one is Production and Decay of Strange Particles. Did not I didn't see, that, see one. that one. It's such an intriguing title. I mean, what is the episode going to be about? I don't know, but I want to find out. <laughs> well, no, they had some definitely interesting uh, titles. I thought one episode, again, with without a bear, that was cool, was Controlled Experiment. Do you guys watch that one? Oh, the comedy with, episode? With uh, Grace Lee Whitney. Going back and forth. I, I, didn't it, see I guess it, I it was a it. pilot for a TV show. They were going to do a uh, sci-fi comedy, and it didn't go anywhere, but it became the only sort of comedic episode of Outer Limits, in which yeah. this guy comes through an elevator. Or these two, well, Basically, these two aliens are watching this guy come through an elevator, and uh, his girlfriend's standing there, and she's like, you two-timing rat, and shoots him. And they have this device that they're able to play that back and forth and rewind and fast forward and slow motion and everything else. And they're trying to figure out the whole motivation for this whole thing. And so they just keep, you know, playing it again and again and again and again. But uh, it was kind of an interesting concept. And Barry Morse played one of the... uh, one of the aliens, and Barry Morris Carol being O'Connor. from Space 1999. Mm. The doctor from a, Space 1999. That was a cost-saving episode, too, because they could reuse the same footage over and over again. Yeah, but you uh, had so to pay the editor a lot of money. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know that they did, but yeah, I know that towards uh, that point in the season, they were looking for a way to save some money. So, Yeah, that editor, he was into time and a half and double time and everything else, meal <laughs> penalties. and. What about, did you guys watch uh, the two-part episode, The Inheritors? You know, I watched part one and I just ran out of time. I couldn't watch part two. I was going to. It was on my list of episodes to get in because you guys were talking it up real good, and and I I didn't make it. I will. I will, in that case I won't uh, get into too many details, but I will say uh, I think it's excellently acted episode. Robert Duvall is in it now. Robert Duvall was in a couple of episodes, both really good, The Inheritors, and then um, The Chameleon which is another mm-hmm. really good episode. And then um, Steve Inot, who was in, uh, you'll remember him from Star Trek as Garth the Visor. Oh, yes. Lord Garth. Lord Garth. <laughs> Lord Garth. Um, I think Ivan Dixon was also in this episode. So Kinslow. there's Yeah, our, our Hogan's hero connection 
I know we were talking uh, the other day about how many different people from, uh, you know, Hogan's Heroes, General Batman, Bird Culture was in uh, an episode. So many shows, you know, uh, you see in these these different episodes. Um, but yeah, The Inheritors is really nice. It's a completely bearless two-parter, um, but very well written and well acted about um, four uh, soldiers who receive head injuries. They actually all get, I think, shot by bullets in the head and develop some interesting capabilities and then start doing, uh, their, you know, when they're released back into civilian life, they all start doing some mysterious things. And anyway, the government is kind of trying to go after them. Uh, but yeah, Robert Duvall does really well in that. It's just so funny to like see him on TV for one thing because I think my f- the first place I probably ever saw him was in The Godfather, mm-hmm. and uh, to see him and he's you know he's a young guy and he's just such a, a talented actor. Um, he is. Did you see, happen to see the episode with him called The Chameleon? No, I don't right. believe so. I was um, thinking first time I saw Robert Duvall was in that Twilight Zone with the dollhouse. Mm. Yeah. Well, the Chameleon's another good one. There was one episode I thought was like really creepy and it was another Robert Culp episode called Corpus Earthling. Did you guys see that one? Yeah. Oh, watch that one. Basically, Robert Culp is a doctor like a surgeon his wife works with a uh, geologist who's a professor who's studying rocks and they have these two alien rock you know these two rocks that fell from the sky and uh, at one point they leave Robert Culp alone in the lab as they go out to get something and Robert Culp supposedly from a previous injury had a plate in his head metal plate and that allowed him to hear these two rocks talking to each other. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so the rocks basically figure out that he's listening in on them. So, of course, he's got to die. And he's the only one that can hear these rocks. So when they come back, you know, the rocks have this sort of, they can, you know, take over your mind and make you do things. And they make him like, crawl up to a window and go to jump out and they grab him and you know he keeps talking about these rocks that are talking and everything and they think he's going crazy so at one point his wife says well you know we need to get away we need to go somewhere and so off she goes with him and they go off on this vacation and the the rocks follow and uh yeah, you know, they can they can take over bodies. They end up like taking over her his wife's body and the professor's body, and of course they're trying to kill him. And there's this really great sequence where he goes out to the store. He comes back and his wife's in bed, so he like crawls on the bed and you know she's like, "Oh, I was waiting for you." And she turns around and the the makeup is so minimal for Outer Limits, but it's really effective. It's like. You know, the really shaded cheekbones and eye sockets and, you know, this really creepy looking makeup. So when she turns around, she's got the makeup and he just like screams and runs out of the room. Um, this is a really good episode, I thought. Again, not with a bear, 
I guess the bear was a couple rocks. Rock, bear but, rock. Uh, <laughs> bear rocks. And, what were you uh, saying about the chameleon? But it's very Karen? good. Oh, I was just going to say you should check out the chameleon. Um, I think it's probably the last episode of the first season. And uh, it, it, the premise, you have to kind of take it all with a grain of salt. So this UFO lands and uh, like in the woods, basically these aliens have like some sort of problem. And then the army detects the UFO and they see some of the aliens get out of their ship and uh, they assume that they're there for no good. Um, They try to figure out some way, you know, to get to the aliens. And the plan they come up with eventually is like, well, we'll infiltrate the ship with someone that we've turned into an alien. Mm -hmm. So that part of it is a little weak. But the story with uh, Duvall, Duvall is like a... uh, a secret agent and he just basically has nothing to live for except his work you know at one point he tells somebody i have no one i love and no one loves me and i just do my work basically so they have this process where they can turn him in they they have some dna from one of the aliens from like touching a tree or something so they they use this weird process that they call like it's somehow using the DNA and sound waves. Anyway, they turn him into, <laughs> I know, they turn him into uh, uh, one of the aliens and he, they broadcast these messages to make it sound like another alien craft had, you know, crashed and he's the survivor of that craft. So he he gets to their ship and, and the aliens there, like they don't buy it for a second. They're like, yeah, we know you're a human being. And, but essentially what happens is he finds belonging with those aliens and uh, he decides that he's going to stay with them and they don't have any ill intentions towards human beings they had faked uh, like having nuclear material on their craft because they knew that they wouldn't get attacked if it looked like they had nuclear weapons Um, and then he winds up you know going off with them because he finally feels like he has something meaningful in his life Um, that sounds like What's that, uh, James Cameron with the blue aliens and they got the (laughs) Avatar? Avatar. They accept him into the tribe. Yeah, it's probably, I mean, it's, I, I, you know, what do they say? There's only 20 actual plot lines or stories out there. Um, And Avatar used them all. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's going to be more (laughs) Avatar movies. Oh, yeah, because everybody wanted them. Um, but it's a good, it's a good episode, uh, as far as the, the actual um, acting and production. The, well, the aliens are pretty cool looking. I, I hear tell that the next Avatar will involve talking rocks, Bob. So, hey, <laughs> Excellent. Cameron going back to... <laughs> I don't remember watching that Outer Limits episode. And Zoe Saldana yeah. is going to have a plate in her head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was looking over this uh, the book from uh, the fine folks at Creature Features, and there was a picture and, and an episode that I didn't get to watch, but the picture was intriguing of the bear. Uh, the episode is called The Mutant. Oh. <laughs> and and the big buggy-eyed... Have you, did you, either of you guys see that episode? No, I did not watch that this, this time around. I didn't watch it this time around, but the guy has got, like, fried eggs for eyeballs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Basically yeah. like a cartoon. Yeah, I, I'm going to check that out as well. I got about yeah. five or six episodes. You know, when I was a kid, a lot of the times when I would see Outer Limits was when I was over at my grandparents' place on Sundays. 
Uh, we would mm-hmm. go visit them at, on Sundays, and I would usually have to sit through um, religious shows first in the morning, and then Outer Limits would come on around like one o'clock or so, and I would be like, I want to watch Outer Limits. So I'd get to watch Outer Limits, and then later we'd have to sit through like Lawrence Welk. So Outer Limits was like the one bright spot on a Go Sunday. Let little Karen watch her heathen TV program. (laughs) (laughs) She had her religion and they had theirs. And so, you know, it was, if it was a day where like the mutant was on, I would be like, oh man. But I'd watch it, you know, because it was all I had. But yeah, (laughs) there were certain episodes that were less, less welcome or thrilling than others. Well, I remember for me, it was like, I remember being over at a friend's house and it was like, you know, we were I was spending the night and we ended up watching the outer that was the first time I saw Outer Limits and it was the sixth finger. Uh-huh. And uh I was you know being the kind of guy who liked aliens and monsters and creatures and things, I was really depressed when they turned him back at the end of the episode. <laughs> but I did realize that he had to come back later in the week to be on uh Man from Uncle. So of course they had uh-huh. to turning back into David McCollum before the end of the episode. That's You're, cool. I, I your Karen's, yeah, Karen's grandparents are pretty cool. I I love Nana and Papa, don't get me wrong, but we used to have to watch Lawrence Welk and Little House on the Prairie. And, oh. Oh. Yeah. That, well, you know, that's what happens when you're growing up with, like, normal people. <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's no for way my, around. For my dad, it was Wide World of Sports. The well, thrill of victory and the agony was, of defeat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. My saving grace was my mother enjoyed Star Trek, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits. So, you know, we go back home and get to watch all that stuff. Um, to this day, I, I love her to death. She calls me and she's like, Larry, I'm like, yeah. Have you ever seen this movie called Eyes Without a Face? It's French. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> 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 So yeah, she you know to this day, and then Avatar is her one of her favorite movies. So wow, well, I, I hope she's not listening in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Larry. But, um, God, you know, it it makes me wonder. Did did they? And it's so sad that they got cut after like a season and a half. Well, if these guys knew the the reverb that it would have throughout television history. Yeah. But then again, in the second season, was it really going in the right direction? I mean, would it have been, you know, amazing episodes after that or would it have been like the third season of Star Trek? Yeah, I think there were a couple of reasons they they got canned um, in the second season. I mean, part of it was, I think, kind of the quality had changed, obviously. I mean, they still had some good episodes in the second season, but they had less influence from both Stevens and yeah. Stefano. They also got switched from their Monday uh, time slot to Saturday. Uh, and they were up against good. Jackie Gleason. Yes. Mm. So, you know, it's the same old story, just like with Star Trek and other shows. You know, you get put in a death slot, basically. Um, that doesn't help. So, but yeah, none of these guys, you know, it's amazing. They, they made these shows and it was a job. And I'm sure at the time they took pride in their work and did the best they could, but 
nobody thought back then, you know, there was there was no they were still pioneering TV and there was no people sitting there looking at stuff, you know, 20, 30 years before. So they just did it. They didn't know crazy people like us were going to be talking about it 60 <laughs> years later. Well, I mean, that was even kind of before the days of syndication. So, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. there are some TV shows that are just lost to the ages because they didn't bother keeping them. It's like, hey, you know, it was on, it's done. You know, maybe it had one rerun during the summer and then well, on you know, to something else. When my mom would, you know, she watched it when it first came on and out in, you know, North Dakota, they had all of like two TV stations, maybe three. And so when one of the things we didn't talk about was the beginning and the ending of each episode, the oh, voice yes. control of the TV. I was just thinking Vic about Perrin. that. They'd be freaked out because, you know, they only got like two or three stations and this guy's taking control of their TV set. I mean, it was believable. Well, I mean, I thought I thought that was like one of the greatest beginnings and endings yeah. any TV show and unfortunately in the second season they condensed it and did like yeah a really short version of it but the mm. first season yeah I mean that it's classic oh yeah, yeah. it's it's like another thing you know it's a signature move it sets it apart and uh, Vic Perrin of course has that fantastic voice and it's another Star Trek connection because he was the voice of the Metrons in Arena and he appeared in um, Mirror Mirror as the leader of the Hulkins. Um, So yeah, you know, it's, you hear that and you know what you're getting into and then of course he gives you the little moral of the story at the end, so. Well, do you know who did the control voice for the new Outer Limits TV show? Never watched it. Never watched. <laughs> Kevin Conroy. Oh, oh, Batman. Yeah, love Kevin Conroy. That's cool. So there you go. That's one reason, I guess, to watch the new versions, but <laughs> or just watch the beginning and then you can shut it off. Yeah, that sounds good. I I heard mixed things about the new Outer Limits. I heard there was a lot of TNA because it was on cable, and so they wanted to bring viewers of a certain age in so outer so, limits after dark the bear was a very different thing on a different kind that was of bear. b-a-r-e <laughs> instead of the b-e-a-r you know one of the other things uh i really enjoyed was the music on each episode a, a lot of good placement of theremin mm-hmm. uh you know, instrumentation with the setting the mood and the tone. And this is like real moody and real, you know, dark man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It set it apart again from everybody else. And I, I probably should have looked to see what else I, I have seen Dominic frontiers credits on other things, but uh, right now at the moment it escapes me. I could Google it, but, um, yeah, he he's, he did other work. I mean, he did work on other uh, shows and films, but um, you know, definitely most people probably know him for Outer Limits. And I know uh, that. Well, let's see. I've got Internet Movie Database up right now. Right now. Let's here take we a go. look here. Dominic Fontieri. The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. <laughs> Oh. Um, yeah. oh, wow. A lot of these, like, they've got, like, The Incredibles 2 and The Watchmen, and that's all because they showed, like, Outer Limits clips during the movies. 
Yeah. Um, but let's see. He wrote the branded theme song for the Big Lebowski. Hmm. Who needs wings to fly from contact? Uh, let's see. Wow. He wrote one episode of Married with Children. Huh. Uh, let's see. He did some music for Freebie and the Bean. Uh, I'm trying to look at stuff that we would actually know. He wrote music for three episodes of The Flying Nun. Freebie and the Bean. Wasn't that Alan Arkin and... Uh, God, I'm going to have to find that. He did music for the TV series Hollywood A-Go-Go. Uh, he did music for the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, one episode. So All maybe right. well, we'll just say Outer Limits yeah. is his crowning <laughs> glory. I'd say, yeah. Go. I'm even looking pre-Outer Limits, and there was... There's a lot of stuff, but, you know, like, nothing really stands out. Well, on the CD soundtrack, it, it's uh, it, it's Dominic Fortier. What is the last name? Frontier. Fortieri. Fortieri and his orchestra. So the guy had some gravitas back in the day. Like Esquivel. There, ex- exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or Loris Welk. <laughs> And a one and a two. <laughs> Start up the bubble machine. <laughs> so, I don't know. Is there any other uh, I don't know, out of limit stuff we need to touch on or delve into? Anything else we want to? Well, I know what people are going to say, you didn't talk about this episode. And you didn't talk about that episode. You didn't but, talk uh, about- well, we did more of a common overview, but... <laughs> Yeah, Zanti, I can sit yeah. here and talk all day about Zanti Misfits, but <laughs> in fact, I read somewhere that the Zanti Misfits was rated in TV Guide as one of the great, one of the 100 greatest episodes of all time. Not out of limits, but of any TV series. What is this? It was like TV 98 guide or something. Of Bob, what's that? <laughs> What is this TV guide you speak of? It was a Bible at one time, I tell you. <laughs> you know, I if I was going to pick, like, the best Outer Limits episode, though, I, I don't think I would pick Santy Misfits. I, I mean, don't know it's, if I'd call it, it the tr- best, just my favorite. Hmm, okay, while well, you were talking about TV guide. 100 I, best. yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I think if I were going to go with like the best, I, I don't know which one I would go with. Nightmare would be up there pretty high because um, it's certainly really well written and well acted. Well, let's uh, let's talk about Nightmare for a second because we didn't really talk about it other than the alien. Yeah, but I, I mean, it's it's an excellent episode. The whole idea of the POWs. And then the, the kind of twist at the end, and it, and it goes back to, I think, Larry, you mentioned the idea of who's the monster, the alien or the human being, right? And that gets to that that concept. The human beings were definitely the monster in this case. Yeah, because they were using the aliens to conduct this experiment to see who could uh, withstand torture or withstand interrogation. Mm-hmm. In fact, right. one, of the, one of the ones that were conducting the experiment was Whit Bissell. <laughs> from Creature yeah. from the Black Lagoon and I Was a Teenage Werewolf and so many others. And a very young Martin Sheen is one of the POWs. Oh, yeah. Well, that's right. 
Uh, and, and, you know, and another thing that they did in this and they did in a number of other episodes uh, is they had a, a multiracial cast, uh-huh. you know, and they had this issue of, uh, you know, the paranoia and distrust between the POWs. I mean, they were projecting a united Earth, which is shades of of Star Trek. But, but you know, once these guys all got settled in to this POW camp and people would be pulled away and interrogated, then everything started breaking down. Uh, and that's in some ways very reminiscent of Twilight Zone episodes as well. Um, but just the, the distrust, mankind's distrust, and we're pretty much always shown to be our own worst enemies. Well, and, you know, speaking of the multiracial cast, you know, the you had a, uh, you know, a black actor, you had an Asian actor, and they weren't just soldiers or whatever. They had, like, important roles on their ships. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think one was a captain and one was, some, you know, but, um, yeah, they weren't just kind of thrown in characters. They, they were integral parts. Right, and they got, um, especially in Nightmare, those actors had significant roles the um the one and i should have written this down but i didn't know how deep we were going to go into nightmare um it might have been james shigita as the the um, asian officer yeah um he was the one who was they were trying to scapegoat and uh, he had a very significant role in that episode and i was thinking wow this is like i don't know 1964 um so it's impressive because i guess my thought from reading and just watching TV from that era. Uh, so I didn't feel like you saw a lot of basically non-white people in major roles on TV. Well, his acting in that episode too was excellent. Oh yeah. He may be the best actor in that episode. And he came back in another um, episode, which I saw and I, it this like escapes me right now, but yeah, he was definitely, he was a captain in a war and they were, uh, but yeah, it was just. Oh, I think it was the Inheritors. That's, That's right. what yeah, you were yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. We were talking offline yeah, about some the, of the I same the actors. First episode, yeah, yeah, definitely. First episode of the um, Inheritors, and yeah, he was in that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing I noticed watching Outer Limits this time at at this point in my life or whatever is that um, there were a lot more roles for um, uh, non-white actors, um, and also. Uh, some of the, the roles for the women were written really well as compared to a lot of the other shows you would see in that time period. Yeah, so definitely. it was, it was very impressive. So yeah, I'm definitely not going to put the box set away anytime soon. I'll get to the yeah, other episodes. You know. Um, cause yeah, it's funny because when I binge on something for an episode, and sometimes once we do the episode, I'm like, okay, I want nothing to do with this for a while. <laughs> but no, that's why I think I'm going to keep it out and just watch watch the rest of it. Watch the ones I haven't watched straight through. Now, I don't have the Blu-ray set. I've got the DVD set. Me too. But I'm thinking, you know, when you look at the DVDs and you look at like even like Nightmare and you can see like the seams and the makeup and things. I don't know mm-hmm. if I'd want it on Blu-ray. It's like all that would be even more apparent. That was my thought with the Twilight Zone as well. Um, you know, I'm just going to keep it on DVD and and just you know work with that. Some things, yeah, think- you know, they were they were made to be watched on a 19 inch TV with rabbit ears and not 
in you know 4K or 1080p or whatever, Um, because you know they knew what they could get away with back then. Yeah, at a certain point, it's sort of diminishing returns. Um, You don't gain anything from upgrading. Like we were saying, it was, you know, before syndication, so there was no thought that this would be seen more than once, maybe twice. So, well, that's yeah, they why, really that's didn't why have t- enough episodes for standard syndication, but yeah. they syndicated it anyway, I guess, because it, it was popular. Well, I mean, like, TV shows back then, you know, it, that's why they were allowed to use a lot of stock footage and things, or re- reuse creatures or whatever, because they figure, okay... You know, it's stock footage from last season. No one's going to remember that. Mm-hmm. But then when you're binging it and you're watching it over <laughs> and over and it's like, oh, yeah, they use this scene for that and that scene for this. And yeah, exactly. Well, look, guys, this this was a good one. Um, I'm glad, uh, Karen, you brought it up. I was able to get back into episodes and appreciate it in a whole different light. Uh, this is standing side by side with Twilight Zone now in my book. There we go. Yeah, I think we've been wanting wanting to do Outer Limits for a while now, so glad we finally got to it. that's true. And I do want to have an honorable mention before we get into the uh, um, censor sweep that um, Mr. Stevens, Leslie Stevens, after the cancellation, and and we've probably all seen this film. Well, I know we have Incubus, the infamous (laughs) Esperanto (laughs) movie that was the entire movie was uh, spoken in Esperanto starred Bill Shatner a lot of the team from uh, Outer Limits they, they, like I said the program had just gotten cancelled so he took as many of those folks with him as he could and uh, it's a good movie uh, even with the Esperanto um, you know the bear is the devil how could you get a bigger bear than that you know, this is just on a little side note I went to uh, Forest J. Ackerman. This wasn't really the, the Acker Mansion. It was more the Acker Bungalow uh, <laughs> after he lost the Acker Mansion. But, you know, when we went over there to visit, there was Forey sitting in a chair. And uh, he was not really talking to anyone. He was, you know, in his later years. But as soon as this one woman came in who was rather voluptuous, he was talking <laughs> her up like crazy. And one of the things he was talking her up about was Esperanto. <laughs> Do you know this is going to be the universal language one day? And blah 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 blah. blah. Have you ever heard of Jeez. Esperanto? So that was it's that was more my first exposure on, to that. Uh, <laughs> Interesting pickup line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Try that in a bar someday. So, have you ever spoken Esperanto? Do you know I speak Esperanto? Monster pa son tatas. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Um, okay, so it is that time in the podcast where we're going to have our sensor sweep, and we're going to kick it up to the satellite. Karen has this episode's sensor sweep. What do you got for us, Karen? Well, thank you, Larry. For the sensor sweep this week, I have this beautiful book. I know Larry has this as well from Creature Features. Yes, it's The Outer Limits at 50 by David J. Shaw with Ted C. Ripel. So this this fantastic book, um, which is sort of coffee table size, but uh, paperback, um, 
we got this guy, I think it was in 2015 at uh, the late lamented creature feature store in Burbank. It coincided with uh, Monster Palooza that year. And uh, it's it's a, a beautiful book. It's got a picture of David McCallum from the Sixth Finger episode on the cover. Um, uh, it does cover all the episodes of the show, but yeah, I think the true value of the book is in the pictures. So it's got fantastic photographs from the show. Some of them are behind the scenes. Some of them are from the episodes. And then it's got a nice section in the back that goes over a lot of the uh products the merchandise that was made for the show um so i have no idea really how you can get this book now i know that larry had pointed out to me he was looking on i think ebay and there were some completely ridiculous prices uh for the book i mean you you know if you want to sell your car and buy the book that's that's cool but uh i think i would just look in some used bookstores things like that go to some conventions if we ever have conventions again Uh, but uh, yeah I'll put it up on the uh, post and you can see it really nice book really happy I got a hold of it see now I have an Outer Limits book it's the Outer Limits compendium I believe and it was by by David Shaw and it came Mm -hmm. out in like 1990 this was like the second volume or second version it was like 1998 so I don't know how that compares or contrasts or differs from because this was like GNP Crescendo I think that published this one yeah I've got Shao's official companion let me see what year this guy is this is uh, 1986 okay so maybe mine was the second version of that one so what I noticed with the, the official companion is it goes very deep into every episode. So it's like the deep cut version. And um, he gives you a lot of background about how the episodes were made. Whereas the uh, Outer Limits at 50 is much more of a picture book. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I think that's the distinction. So if you wanted to know everything about Outer Limits, I'd get the companion. If you wanted some nice photographs, I'd get the Outer Limits at 50 if you can find it anywhere. Very cool. Thank you, Karen. And uh, before we close out this episode, we found out uh, late last night, early this morning, uh, the passing of David Prowse, the actor who portrayed... Uh, the Dark Lord of the Sith, Darth Vader, in Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. Um, David was in um, Hammer films. He, he was in some Benny Hill episodes. Um, he did the convention circuit for years. He was at different conventions. And we'll have a, a quick go-round with some memories and thoughts. Um, let's start it off with Bob. Well, yeah, I mean, I grew up with David Prowse basically in the Hammer films, like uh, Horror, Frankenstein, and Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and of course in Star Wars. In fact, I was very disappointed in Jedi where uh, they finally took his helmet off and it wasn't Prowse underneath. Yeah. You know, I thought, here this guy has given his heart and soul to the role for three movies. And he doesn't get the reveal, you know, 
We have some guy who looks like Uncle Fester in there. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, yeah, I mean, David Prowse, amazing. Just like statuesque. I mean, he was huge and muscular, and I don't think anyone else at the time could have pulled off the Vader role. True. He, um, I'd read an article where he helped train Christopher Reeves for uh, bulking up for Superman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, he was also in the Clockwork Orange. Right. Yeah. Right. Karen, any words or comments? Any, uh, Mr. David Prowse? Well, I remember going to, I think it was a Grand Slam convention in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. So it was more Star Trek focused than Star Wars. But uh, David Prowse was there signing autographs. And you were there too, Larry. Yes, I remember. And uh, I remember uh, thinking, well, I should get his autograph because this is Darth Vader. Right. So uh, I, don't, I, I was never a huge autograph hound, but there were certain people that I definitely wanted to get autographs from. And going up to his table, and, and it was one of those days, for whatever reason, people were in the, the hall and they weren't in the uh, dealer's room, so nobody was there. And uh, just going up to the table, and he was the nicest gentleman. He was so kind, and we just started talking, and he signed a picture. We kept talking, and then he said, well, come around, come around the corner here. Let's take a picture. You know, back in the days when people would take pictures with you and not charge you for a selfie or anything <laughs> like that. And uh, I had uh, an actual camera at that time, and I think you took the picture yeah. for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, he put his arm around me. We took a picture. And I just thought, wow, this is, he, he was a very genuine person. Um, and I know he had, oh, man, he could rail against Lucas and other, you know, things. I read all the interviews and stuff. But I would say for a fan experience, uh, it was a very pleasant experience. And uh, certainly, you know, his portrayal of Vader was a, a part of my childhood that, you know, always always appreciate so just uh you know wish all the best to his family yes yes um you know i'd seen him at a couple of shows like karen had said the sci-fi summit down in pasadena there was a comic book outlet here it had two or three shops and their distinction was that they were in a mall and other than the movie mall rats uh kevin smith's film I'd never seen a comic shop in a mall, but uh, my niece Kayla was, God, maybe five or six, and she grew up on Star Wars for obvious reasons, and uh, I took her with to get the uh, autograph from David Prowse, and this is after episode one had come out, and so the autograph says, David Prowse is Darth Vader, definitively. (laughs) And I have it on this great 1970s poster of Vader and has like a little purple cloud background. And he's kind of walking out towards you with the, you know, you could tell they painted the laser part of the uh, lightsaber. Um, But it is one of my cherished uh, pieces of memorabilia that I need to find room uh, in the office here to put up. So rest in peace, David Prowse. And thank you for all of the entertainment that you provided us fans over the years. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. 
We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planetatepodcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8, signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. We now return control of your television set to you. Until next week at this same time, when the control voice will take you to the outer limit.